welcome as we are at our final week of our Jonah series. I hope it's been a meaningful series for you. We've been in it about three months, and I hope it's been really good for you. Jonah has been and continues to be one of my favorite books that we find in Scripture. Incredible typology of Christ. It's incredibly honest about Jonah, especially when we get back to chapter 4 here, which is where we'll be. If you have a copy of your Scriptures, you can turn there. Um, just incredibly honest about revealing this prophet's failings. Um, and uh, I, I hope at least, no matter where you came in, if you came in with a really deep knowledge of Jonah, or even if you came in having really never heard the story of Jonah before, I hope at the very least you come out of here realizing that it's a lot more than just a story of a man who gets stuck in a fish for a couple of days. Um, but it's actually uh, a really powerful book to show us who we are. And then also to show us, most importantly, who our God is. Um, and, and so I hope that this is going to be uh, been a meaningful series for you. This, over the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to uh, a friend or two about uh, Jonah and the series. And we keep coming back to the same word to describe this series. And that word is apocalyptic. That Jonah is an apocalypse. And that might sound really strange to us because I'm not using the word in the same way that we often have become, you know, started to use that word. When you hear the word apocalypse, you most likely think of the end of the world, some you know, cataclysmic destruction that just you know, destroys everything, right? That's kind of the way we use apocalypse, but that's not the way that the Bible uses that word. The Bible uses the Greek word apocalypto to mean the, uh, the unveiling or the uncovering or revealing of something that used to be hidden. And so in a sense, what Jonah has been experiencing over these four chapters has been a spiritual apocalypse. God sees certain things that are going on in Jonah's heart and life that were hidden to Jonah. They were there the whole time. But through a series of events that the Lord graciously brings into Jonah's life, he's uncovering, he's revealing what is inside of Jonah. It's an apocalypse. It's a revealing and uncovering. In order to do that, Jonah has gone through some really uncomfortable acts of God's grace that probably have not felt good to Jonah. Do you ever realize that, that it usually takes something really uncomfortable or painful for us to be aware of what the Lord is doing? It seems in order to get our attention, there has to be something difficult, some sort of suffering, some sort of um, uncomfortable situation. Because when everything's going well, those are the exact moments where I feel like I start to coast. I start to put God on the back burner and I ignore what he's doing and I, and I just kind of sit in the, the, the steadiness or the easiness of life. And it usually takes some sort of uncomfortable situation to awaken me. And the Lord uses those hard moments as his most powerful tools in our lives. C.S. Lewis put it, uh, this way, in a really uh, famous way, in the book, The Problem of Pain, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's at least been my experience, that some of the most, the, the most meaningful times where the Lord has been uh, the most gracious to me, the most... Uh, bringing the most transformation in my life, always pair with something really hard and really uncomfortable. 
And that's exactly what we've seen happen throughout the entire book in Jonah's life. At least the little window that we get into it here. Jonah chapter 1, we talked about this several weeks ago, some of these uncomfortable gifts of grace that God brings into Jonah's life. After Jonah directly disobeys God's call to go to Nineveh, to be his prophet, bringing repentance to the city of Nineveh, Jonah goes the other way and God graciously pursues him through a storm, waking him up to what God is doing and to what's going on inside of Jonah. Then we also saw that God graciously provided probably the world's worst Airbnb, right? This, this giant fish to swallow up Jonah and to hold him for three days. And we find in Jonah chapter 4, where we're going to look this morning as we wrap up our series, the difficult things that the Lord provides in order to get to Jonah's heart, to reveal what is going on in there, the list continues. So Jonah chapter 4 uh, we're going to pick up in verse 5, and we're going to find that, as, as Pastor Jen introed last week and talked about, a lot of this revolves around a plant, a little plant. So pick up in verse 5 with me. Jonah had gone out and had sat down at a place east of the city, the city being Nineveh. And there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live." See the things that God is providing in this passage? We saw earlier in chapter 1, he provides a storm and he provides this fish. And now God keeps providing things that Jonah, I'm sure, didn't really enjoy, at least all of it. Starts out really good, doesn't it? God provides this leafy plant to grow up and give shade to Jonah's head. But then God provides a worm to destroy that gift. Then he provides a scorching east wind. And the sun blazes on Jonah's head. And you think, what is God doing? Because some of this, it started off really good, how we would consider blessed and amazing God's provision. And then all of a sudden, it seems to take a little bit of a dark turn. And it doesn't feel like good gifts. It feels like, if anything, God is taking away these gifts. And it, it might not seem like his grace or his love, but it might actually seem cruel and a little bit mean. Is that what's going on? It's not because God is concerned about something far more important than Jonah's momentary happiness. God, we said this a couple weeks ago, I'm going to say it again. God's involvement, his grace in your life is not aimed at your comfort. But God's involvement in your life has a better goal. The goal of his glory and your ultimate good. God's not concerned just with this little moment, but he's thinking about the eternal joy that you have that begins now of knowing him and growing with him for all of eternity. That's what he has in mind. He has in mind your holiness, your Christ-likeness. He has in mind getting into your heart in everything that he does and using all of those circumstances, all those experiences to make you like Jesus, to get in and dig out the roots of sin that still, feel like, that still have a hold. Rooting them out. That's what Jesus 
is all about when he interacts with you. That's what God wants in your life. These uncomfortable moments, these uncomfortable gifts of grace are one of the most powerful ways that he uses to get into our hearts, to reveal what is going on, to uncover it so that we can see who we are and more importantly, we can see who God is. And so our hope and prayer has been, as, as, if you've been with us for the last couple of months, if you're just jumping in with us, um, you might have missed a lot. And you can always go back and, and catch up on those sermons on podcast or YouTube. But if you've been with us for the last couple of months, our hope and prayer is that this hasn't just been a moment to look at some prophet's life and point our fingers at him. But our hope and prayer is that this has been an opportunity for it to be a spiritual apocalypse for you. That as we're walking through the life of Jonah, that it's almost like you're holding up a mirror and the Lord is using his story to reveal what's going on in your heart and in my heart as well. You know, when I think about early on in, in the story of Jonah and how Jonah, um, his attitude is really clear, right? towards his enemies, towards those who think differently than him, those who live a lifestyle that's disgusting to him, who, who don't worship the God of Israel, who have done really hard, miserable things to Jonah and his people. His attitude toward them is not of love, but it's actually of hate, wanting bad things to happen to them, withholding love and care for them and actually directly disobeying God in order to do that. And I hope that that has been a mirror for you, as it has been for me. A mirror that reveals how often and how easy it is for me to be just like Jonah. To look at someone who sees things differently than I do, and, and, and to have that same withholding of love from them. To other them, as the phrase that we used a couple of weeks ago. To treat them as less than human, kind of caricaturizing them as the thing that you disagree with them. That's who they are that defines them treating them less than human, thinking they're another kind of stupid or they're another level of sinner. Maybe they're, they're actually out of, they're, they're beyond the hope of God's grace. And as soon as we do that, now we've just given ourselves an excuse to not treat them with love and try, not treat them with kindness, but to treat them as less than human. Maybe it's been a revealing thing for you in that way. Or maybe as we go back into chapter 4, verse 10, passage we looked at last week. Here's what it says again, just to remind us. Chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, the Lord says to Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Maybe as you hear that, and as Pastor Jen walked us through that passage last week, maybe that's been a moment of conviction for you, where the Lord is revealing the true lack of compassion that you have deep down inside. I say compassion because the NIV translation that we're using translates that word concern. It's the same word you could use to say compassion. So in other words, what God is saying to Jonah is, hey, Jonah, you have compassion towards this plant, should I not have compassion towards people who are made in my image, who I did cause to grow? And as we see Jonah's idolatry, him prioritizing his comfort, his possessions, his plant that he didn't even help in any way with, 
as we see him prioritizing his comfort and his material possessions and his circumstances over other people, it's another opportunity for us to look in the mirror and to realize how easy and how often we do the same thing. How much we love our comfort more than we love our neighbor who's next door or across the street. How much we love and value our reputation over our coworker or classmate's salvation. And we just rather not say anything, not get into that mess. Maybe the Lord's been using Jonah's story to show you that you tend to treat people as a means to an end, an end of your power, of your pleasure, of your comfort, of an easy life. Or you've just tended to value the creation over the creator, wanting an easy life, more stuff, pleasure over God, the source of all of those things. And the list could just go on and on, right? I'd love to sit with you and hear what the Lord has been revealing in your life through the book of Jonah and share with you the places that he has done the same for me. And at the same time, I'm pretty sure that you might be feeling like you haven't even really needed Jonah per se this year to have some things revealed in your life. 2020 has been an apocalypse. Not in the end of the world, we're still here, we're fine. But an apocalypse in the uncovering and the revealing of what's inside. It has been for me, COVID has been. It's revealed our obsession with controlling our lives and being the boss. And it hits us really hard, right square between the eyes, because 2020 has shown you don't have control over your life. You aren't the one ruling this universe. It's revealed the delicate and fragile nature of our lives. And if you just want a little bit of evidence of that, just pay attention to that rising anxiety that grips so many of us, myself included. It's revealed the hidden fear and the insecurity that we have. It's, hidden, it, it, it's revealed the judgmental attitude that we come into life with, just condemning other people who deal with things differently than we do. How little we care actually about others. Some of us, it's revealed our over-dependence on people, and others, it's revealed the, the, the lie that we think we are autonomous and don't need anyone else. It's revealed how lonely and isolated we really feel inside. In essence, it's revealed our smallness, our humanity. And it's been uncomfortable, hasn't it? I don't know what your week has been, or your month, or your nine months, whatever it's been. But this week was especially uncomfortable for me. It was one of these weeks where by Friday morning, my left eye was twitching and I couldn't stop it. Ever have that? It's not a good sign for me. It's just one of those weeks where I just felt super small. I felt very exposed, very revealed. All kinds of things outside of my control. So many things I didn't have answers to, questions I had, and I just felt really afraid. I could feel the rising anxiety inside of myself, and I know I'm not alone in that. We as a staff have heard from so many, we know that so many of us are in that exact same boat, where the Lord just graciously reveals how small we are. But it hasn't just been revealing lately how small I am. He's also been revealing how deeply arrogant I am, how critical I can be,
how thin a, li a little layer of compassion I really have for people. And it's been some really hard conversations with some really close friends who've stepped in and the Lord has used to reveal what's going on in my own heart. And I know I'm not the, again, I'm not the only one in the room where the Lord is doing that because he is graciously doing that to all of us, showing us how small we are and showing us the places where we don't yet look like Jesus. And when you've been in those moments, whether your eyes twitching or not, you don't like it, do you? You don't feel comfortable. You, you just start to squirm inside. You just want out. You want proof? How many days left until 2020 is over? Anybody know the count? I know we're all counting down, like the turn of the calendar is just going to change everything. We can't wait to get out of 2020. We work really hard to just appease the conviction that we feel when the Lord's revealing something. It's not fun. No one enjoys that moment. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, I'm going to read a, read a passage, and, and, and it starts out this way, verse 7. Hebrews 12, verse 7, calls us to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. And before we go any further, I want to just pause. Because when we hear the word discipline, you think punishment, don't you? Endure discipline, you think punishment. The problem is it's not exactly the direction that this passage is leading us. When you hear the word discipline in here, I want you to think more of instruction, training. Training up a child is, the way, is what term this is. Instructing, raising a kid, training. Endure hardship as God's training, in other words. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all have human fathers who disciplined, trained us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines, God trains us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. Verse 11, so important, so true. No discipline, no training seems pleasant at the time, but rather painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's just so true. When God is graciously revealing things in your heart, whether it's a, a, a sin, a fear, an anxiety, your smallness, whatever it is, it doesn't feel good. And that shows us, I think, importantly, that self-awareness is not the end goal. So there's a lot of self-help books, and self-awareness is a really important thing, but what you and I need, more than just to be aware of ourselves, is we need to be transformed. We need to experience what 2 Corinthians 3 says, which says that as you and I contemplate the Lord's glory, as we gaze at the Lord's glory, as we meditate on who God is, in spite of or in light of and in contrast to who we are, that we experience, as it says, being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Which brings us to a really important question. If God is allowing or bringing some of these really hard things in our lives that are uncomfortable. The question is, can we trust him? 
What's he like? Are we sure he's going to do these things for good reasons? This is where for the rest of our time, I just want us to look at two things. Number one, the character of our God. Because what you and I need is we need a confidence in who God is. And secondly, we need to know what the end goal of God's involvement in our lives is. What is he doing with all of this uncovering and revealing? The first thing, both of them are found in Jonah chapter 4. One is explicitly mentioned and one is a little more subtle. The character of God is shown in chapter 4, verse 2. You've been hearing it all morning. But the phrase that Jonah uses to describe God is accurate. He's quoting what God said about himself, and yet Jonah's doing it in bitterness. He's not celebrating who God is. He's upset with who God is. But you've been hearing it all morning. It says, he says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You can, God can say that about himself all he wants, but the question is, does he do that? And you could use this as a theme verse throughout the entire book of Jonah because every interaction that, jo- that God has with every person that you meet, whether it's the sailors, whether it's Jonah, whether it's Nineveh, what you see is God consistently living out the fact that he is patient, that he, I'm sorry, that he's gracious, that he's compassionate, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in love and faithfulness, and that he relents in sending calamity. You can see it all the way through. Think about Jonah or Nineveh, either one. Nineveh, the wickedness of, God, of, of, of humanity is coming up before God. And God, rather than just striking them down and destroying the city, which would be well within his rights, graciously calls a prophet to go and speak to them and call them to repentance. Because why? Because he's gracious and he's compassionate. And when he sees people, when he sees, this is the same for you and I, when he sees us in our wickedness, that does not bring him to anger that moves him to compassion. And he sees Nineveh and he calls Jonah. And then he sees Jonah who runs the opposite way. And God runs after him. And he's patient with him. He doesn't give Jonah over to his his sin but he gives them a second birth. He gives them another chance to go back. And he comes to Nineveh. You want to talk about being slow to anger. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. When's the last time you and I were patient for 40 minutes? Think about how long it takes for there to be anger inside of you when you see a news report or a post that a friend shares on on social media that 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 you disagree with. It's 40 seconds at most. 40 days, slow to anger, who relents in sending calamity. Because what we find in chapter 3 is when Nineveh turns and repents, God forgives. And this isn't just a one-time act for God with Jonah and Nineveh. In fact, this is who he is, and, and we see that most clearly in the person of Jesus. John chapter 14 says, Jesus says, if you want to know what the Father is like, because the disciples are asking him, hey, when do we get to see the Father? He says, well, if you want to see the Father, look at me. Jesus is the exact representation of God. And the most common word that is used to describe Jesus and in his, intera- his interactions with people is that he was filled with compassion. The very reason that Jesus came to this earth was compassion, that he saw you and I in our wickedness, and it moved him to action, to come towards us, to rescue us, 
And so that even to the point where Jesus is on earth, his life is filled with this slow to anger, filled with compassion. So we find Jesus in the book of Luke coming upon the great city, so opposite of Jonah. He comes to the east, very similar to Jonah, of the great city of Jerusalem, looking out over the city that has killed prophets that he knows has rejected him. And instead of being anger, angry, instead of throwing a hissy fit outside the city, Jesus approaches the city from the east and he weeps over a people who would not repent. It's displayed over and over again to the point where Jesus was hung on a cross after enduring a beating that most people didn't even survive. And he's nailed on a cross and the soldiers who did all this to him are down here gambling for his clothes. And even at that moment, Jesus isn't angry. Instead of cursing them, he says, Father, forgive them. How slow to anger can you be? This is such good news for you and me because it means where God, wherever you are, whatever God is doing in your life, whatever he is revealing, he's doing it because he's gracious to you, because he's compassionate and he wants something better for you. And he wants something better for me. And he's slow to anger. If you are united with Christ by faith, then I get to tell you the good news that God is not angry at you. He's not disappointed in you. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God on your behalf. There is no anger left for you. He has relented in sending calamity on you because he's taken it on himself. That's who our God is. So what is he doing in all of this? What is he doing with all of this revealing which feels really uncomfortable and painful? Well, second thing, it's a little more subtle in the passage. Look at how God speaks to Jonah. Do you notice that he doesn't make any statements? He asks three questions. Just pause here and review. Is there anything in the entire universe, theoretical, possible, or actual, that God does not know? He knows it all. So why does God consistently throughout all of Scripture come to people and ask questions? He does it with Adam. He does it with Cain. He does it with Job. He does it with Jonah. He's going to do it later on when Jesus is with Peter. Why does he ask questions? It's not to gain information. His questions are always an invitation. Come to me. Turn to me. It's an invitation to relationship, to deepening that relationship with him. He doesn't speak harshly. He invites. And he doesn't invite once. How many times, how many questions does he ask? I don't think it's a coincidence. He asks three times. The number of completion, of totality. God is not interested in just being partially restored to you or just a partial relationship with you. He wants the whole thing. He wants your relationship with you to the depth that you don't even understand. He wants all of you. And he has promised that what he is doing in your life is working towards that end, to remove any barrier between you and him. Do you have the right to be angry? Do you have the right to be angry about the plant? Do I have the right to be compassionate? Invitation, invitation, invitation to come back to God. So then, 
Let's find out how Jonah responds to that. Turn in your, page, turn your Bible one page to Jonah chapter 5. Anybody turn? No? Darn. First service, a couple people turned. There is no Jonah 5. What a strange ending to a book. Why? What happens with Jonah? Does he respond to God's invitation? Even though it's been uncomfortable and painful in Jonah's life as, he's been, as his sinfulness and his insecurities and his attitudes have been revealed? Does he turn? Or does he continue to, to walk away? Does he continue to turn his back and kind of ignore God's gracious involvement in his life? Or does he turn and does he submit? What happens in Jonah 5? You could spend all kinds of time theorizing about what happened. And if you do that for too long, you'll have missed the entire point as to why it's written this way. There is no Jonah 5 because Jonah 5 is written every single day by you and me. Because this is one of these examples where the question is more important than knowing the answer in Jonah's life. The question is actually posed for you and me. As the Lord is graciously revealing things in your life that are uncomfortable, painful, how will you respond? Will you humble yourself and will you submit to the Lord's work in your life? Will you dig in your heels and ignore him? Because the Lord is gracious and compassionate and he's slow to anger and he's overflowing with love for you. And he has promised that every single thing that you experience in life, every uncomfortable apocalypse that he brings, showing you what's in your heart, is ultimately to bring about transformation in your life, to make you like Jesus. That is what he's promised. So the question today is how does Jonah 5 written for you? The question is going to come up over and over again as the Lord continues to reveal. How will you respond to the Lord's work in your heart? just want to conclude by reading the lyrics to uh, one of my favorite songs, Before the Throne of God Above, in chapter, or I'm thinking it's verse 3 or 2, I'm not sure. It's one of the middle verses. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair, and there's almost no time in my life where I feel more tempted to despair than the moment the Lord reveals something ugly in my heart. I want to run. I want to hide from it. I feel that temptation to despair. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there. I see Christ who has made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. That is our God. Let's pray. Father, there are so many times where the way that you reveal things to us is so gentle and gracious, and yet it's so painful at the same time. It's not fun, but it's for our good. And so I just want to thank you for your involvement, that you don't leave us to ourselves, but you come in and you show us who we are, but yet you don't leave us in that place. And Father, for every one look we have at our sin and our shortcomings, Lord, we want to take 10 looks at you, Jesus. 
the one who made an end to all my sin and who has promised for those of us who love you and are called according to your purpose that you will take everything that we experience in life and come against and use it to the end of making us like you, Jesus, to make us holy. Lord, may we lean into that. May we trust more and more your goodness. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.